Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 2? If you're new with us, we are currently doing a study in the book of Joshua here on Sunday mornings at Calvary. Studying it, first of all, historically, as we look at the record of Israel's conquest of the Promised Land, but also studying it spiritually, looking at it as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. Now, this morning we find ourselves in chapter 2, where we are introduced to a woman named Rahab. And as we pointed out last week, as we learned here from chapter 2, she was a pagan prostitute, an immoral woman living in an immoral city and culture. I mean, there was nothing in this woman that would cause God to love her, necessarily. I mean, there certainly wasn't anything in her that was deserving of salvation. Her life was utterly sinful. And yet God did love her. In fact, God loved her and had a plan for her life. God was going to use this woman to be a testimony of God's amazing grace, not just in her life, but that grace that is available for any life. You see... There's more than meets the eye with the story of Rahab. I mean, sure, yes, God wanted to save this woman from the judgment that was coming upon Jericho. That's true. But I really see in this story more than that. I really see that beyond that, God was using her to demonstrate his heart for the lost in general. There's a lot more at stake here. When we read our Bibles and we read these stories, um, yes, there's a historical uh, context. But there are spiritual principles that the Holy Spirit is wanting to bring out. And I really see in this that God is trying to use Rahab to teach us his heart for the lost in general. I think it's interesting that right after we are introduced to the main character of this book, which is Joshua himself, who is a type of Christ, by the way, the very next person that God chooses to focus on is a Gentile prostitute that he wanted to save from the wrath to come. In this context, of course, that wrath would have been his judgment upon this wicked city known as Jericho. But, you know, this should give us pause and cause us to remember that spiritual success in God's eyes is not about buildings and budgets. It's not about how wealthy or even how well-known a church is. It never has been, and it never will be. God's heart or God's idea of success is always in reference to people, souls that he wants to rescue from the judgment that is coming because God desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is always God's heart. As you read the Bible, it is one unfolding story of God's redemptive plan for reaching out and saving from this lost, fallen world a people, anybody who would come to him and receive his rescue plan. Jesus Christ came into the world on a search and rescue mission, and he expressed the heart of our Heavenly Father. In fact, Jesus is our Joshua, right? The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. As we pointed out last week, prostitutes like Rahab and tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus, you know, those people that society considers disposable people, those folks that all the quote-unquote decent folks hate and don't want anything to do with. We see in Jesus' ministry, these were the very people he was always reaching out to. Caught a lot of flack from from the religious folks like the Pharisees who condemned him because he hung out with sinners. Hey, when you're trying to heal the sick, you don't hang around with the healthy. Jesus said, look, I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That doesn't mean the Pharisees were righteous. They just thought they were righteous and didn't need any help. He said, I've come to those who know they're sick with sin, 
who know they need a Savior. And of course, that was all those folks that society had pretty much written off. As we pointed out last week, Jesus reached out to these people because no one is worthless to God. No one is beyond his grace to save them or beyond his power to transform them if they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I I really want you to remember this. Because when we talk about being victorious as Christians, so often we define that in terms of self-improvement, don't we? In other words, when we think of being victorious, we often think of quitting smoking, drinking, using drugs. We think of it in terms of conquering over other addictions like food, pornography, gambling, other vices that have us bound. You're saying, was that wrong? No, it's not wrong. I'm not saying that spiritual victory doesn't include conquering over these things. It does. But remember, as we've already pointed out many times, spiritual warfare at its core is all about rescuing people that have been taken captive by the devil through his lies. And we have the truth that alone can set them free, which is the gospel. So when we talk about spiritual victory, spiritual success, yes, self-improvement is part of it. But at the very core, when God thinks of success, he thinks of those people that are reaching out and trying to save others from the power of the devil. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why when he announced his public ministry, the beginning of it in in, uh, Luke chapter 4, he said, I have come to preach the gospel. And what is that going to do? It's going to set the captives free. It's going to open the prison doors and let those who are bound go free. It's all about taking people away from the devil that he has taken captive through his lies and by the truth of God releasing these folks that they might be free of the deception that had them bound and become children of God and walk in the light. And I believe this was the underlying message that God wanted to communicate to us right at the outset of this book on spiritual victory. It's all about rescuing people from coming judgment. Now, with that in mind, as we said last time, I've divided this chapter into three main parts. The reality of Rahab's faith in verses 1 through 7. The reason for Rahab's faith, verses 8 through 14. And then the result of Rahab's faith, verses 15 through 21. And the rest of the verses of chapter 2 belong to chapter 3. So we'll save those for next week. Last week, we looked at the first one, the reality of Rahab's faith in the first seven verses. If you weren't here and you really want to get into this, we went into this in detail last week. So you can get the CD. But let me just quickly summarize. We saw in the beginning here of chapter 2 how that Joshua sent the two spies out to, uh, to spy out Jericho. We realized that later on, they really were not on a reconnaissance mission. Because we find out later, God planned to knock the walls down supernaturally. So there was no point in going to Jericho to try to find weaknesses in the enemy's defenses that you could capitalize on when you attacked. It wasn't going to be necessary. So these guys really weren't on any kind of intelligence-gathering operation. They were sent by God for one main reason, to rescue a person who had put her faith in him. And really, as we look at how that when Joshua sent the two spies out, and by God's providence they found Rahab's house. They weren't, I, don't, I don't even think they were trying to find Rahab's house, but God led them to this woman's house, the very woman God wanted them to rescue Of course, the king of Jericho also had spies that were keeping an eye on the children of Israel. He saw these two guys come into the city. He knew they had gone into Rahab's house. He sent some soldiers there to arrest these two guys. And Rahab says, look, they were here. I didn't know who they were. I sent them on their way. And quick, go chase them. You might be able to catch them still. And we said, look, why would she take her life into her hands like that? 
I mean, if the king of Jericho had found out she was actually hiding the guys under on her roof, I mean, he would no doubt have killed her, and it wouldn't have been pretty. Why did she take her life into her hands to protect these two strangers, these two enemies who were strangers? Well, as we said last time, I believe the only thing that accounts for that is that by this time she had already changed her allegiance. She had already come to put her faith in the God of Israel before the spies ever got there. And that's why we said her faith was real. That's what we've called that first point, the reality of her faith. Why? Because she demonstrated that her faith was not just head knowledge. She was willing to sacrifice her very life for what she had come to believe in. Folks, that's genuine faith. Read James chapter 2 again. Because saving faith always has actions attached to it. And we'll talk about that more as we go on today. All right, so that was the reality of Rahab's faith, the first seven verses. Then we come to the second main point, the reason for Rahab's faith. How did she come to believe? Well, we read in verse 8. Now before they lay down, these were the two spies, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihong and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. You think the enemy is scared of God's people? We sometimes think we're the ones scared of the enemy. I, I kind of see in this the enemy is a lot more scared of us than we are of him. Because the Lord God fights for us. The battle is not ours, it's his. So the enemy, Satan and his demons, aren't going up against us, really. They're going up against the Lord. No wonder they're scared, right? Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Let's call this section, Faith Comes by Hearing. To borrow from what Paul said in Romans 10:17, Look, isn't it interesting that Rahab shows more faith in the God of Israel than the ten spies did 40 years earlier who are the people of God? Think about that. Moses sends in 12 spies 40 years earlier. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, brought back a good report. Yeah, it's a good land. There's giants in the land. These are big guys. But you know what? Who cares? God's bigger. We'll, we'll take them. Let's go in and take the land. Ten of the spies said, no, man, it, we're, they're too big for us. We can't go in there. We can't fight against these guys and win. We're, no, no way. And so the people listened to the ten evil spies. And so they didn't, they, they wanted to appoint a leader to take them back to Egypt, if you can believe that. And so uh, God was so angry with them that he drove them back out into the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died out. And their children would possess the land. But these ten spies, they had been in Egypt. They had seen God bring plague after plague. They had seen God work miracles before their eyes. They had seen God lead them through the Red Sea, parting it and taking the form of a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. They saw God rain manna down from heaven every single day for them to eat. They saw God bring water out of the rock. And whatever else God did out there, they saw all these miracles. And yet when they saw the size of the enemy, their hearts fainted. This is a pagan gal. At one time, all she does is hear about, she doesn't even see the things with her eyes. She just hears, and she becomes a believer. 
you know, several years ago, there was a big, big push to, to do what was called power evangelism. What, what was that? There, was a, there were groups around that said we can't properly evangelize the lost unless we use miracles, unless God gives us miracles to, to do. Well, look, miracles will not force somebody to believe who doesn't really want to believe. They will nudge somebody into the faith who has an open heart, but they'll never force somebody to believe that refuses to believe. Case in point, the Lord Jesus himself, who did so many miracles, John said, even all the books of the world can't contain them all. And yet when it was all said and done, most of the people he ministered to hung on a cross and crucified him. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, not necessarily seeing miracles. And so realize that the power to save somebody comes through the Holy Spirit working through the word of God. Or at very least, working through people that have heard what God has said and how God has worked in other people's lives. Your testimony is a very powerful thing, by the way. You can be saved five minutes and share your testimony. And God can use that. But Rahab showed more faith in verse 9, you know, as she said, we, you know, we know that the Lord has given you this land. The terror of, of your God has fallen upon all of us. I know he's the Lord God of all, verse 11, who is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. But her faith was not based on feelings. This is also a point I want to make. It was based on facts. She had heard about the miracles God performed 40 years earlier in parting the Red Sea. She had heard about more recent miracles and how God had given them victory over the two very powerful kings. Sihon and Og were giants. They were giants. There were giants in the land and there were giants outside the land. Sihon and Og, king of the Amorites, were giants, literal giants who lived on the east side of the Jordan, and God led his people to, to battle them, and God gave them the victory. And so Jericho, the people of Jericho have heard these things. And so their hearts are failing them for fear. You say, well, how did they know about all these things? I mean, how did the Canaanites in general, and the people of Jericho in particular, how did they know about all the things God had done? Hey, word gets around, folks. Word gets around. I mean, no doubt travelers, merchants coming through the, the land, right? Don't forget, Rahab was a prostitute. I'm sure many of her own customers who were travelers from out of town shared with her the exploits of the God of Israel and what he was doing with his people in the wilderness and so on. Now, I want you to just understand again that God saved this woman not because she was a good person who deserved to be saved. God saved her because of her faith. The same way he saves all of us. We aren't told the details of Rahab's faith. It was simple, no doubt. But she had obviously heard enough about the God of Israel and had believed enough in the God of Israel that her faith became saving faith, that it was sufficient enough to save her. But I want you to notice something. She says, we have heard all the people of Canaan, not just Jericho, all the people of Canaan had heard these stories about the God of Israel, had heard of all his exploits, all the miracles he did. They had all heard only Rahab believed. And so only Rahab was benefited. You know, James says, don't be hearers of the word only deceiving yourselves. People come to church and they hear the word of God. But it's really not mixed with faith. Now, that's what the writer to the Hebrews says, by the way. He said in um, Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, 
But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And uh, the writer is saying that, you know, even Israel, the chosen people of God, who had God's word, not everybody in Israel believed. There were those that heard the reading of the word every single Sabbath. But for some, it was mixed with faith and they were true believers. Others, it went one in one ear and out the other. The only way we can be saved is by faith. That's true, but not just any faith. All right, what do you mean? Well, it's not passive faith that saves us. It's not simply head knowledge. I mean, the Bible says the demons believe in Jesus Christ and tremble. They're not going to heaven. Saving faith is faith that is action-oriented. That's a commitment. It's not a passive head knowledge. It's an act of faith built on commitment and obedience and, and action. Again, the two scriptures that talk about Rahab by name in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, verse 31, first of all says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. She didn't perish with those who did not believe, implying, of course, that she did believe. And that's why she hid the spies and took her life into her hands. James tells us in James chapter 2, verse 25 and 6, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And again, James isn't saying that she was justified by her works. He was saying that, look, her faith was proven to be genuine because she had works to back it up. In other words, her faith was not just a head knowledge. It was actions. She did something. What did she do? Well, she took her life into her hands to spare the two spies, which gave evidence to the fact that this woman's faith was genuine. Again, it wasn't passive. It wasn't like those today or back in Paul's day even who call themselves Christians that Paul writing to Titus spoke of when he said they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Let me paraphrase. They profess to have faith. But their lives don't back it up. And these are the very kinds of people that Jesus spoke to in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? See, what he's saying is, you call me Lord, you say you have faith, but it's not saving faith. It's not genuine. Because if it was real faith, it would manifest itself in a heart to obey. Rahab had a heart to obey the God of Israel. As we're going to see, whatever the spies told her, she believed was coming from the God of Israel, and she desired to obey it to the letter. And she did. But we also see the genuineness, the genuineness of her faith manifested, not just in the conduct of her life, but also in the concern of her heart for others. And here it shows up primarily in her concern for her own family. She had a heart to see them saved, that they might escape the coming judgment too. Now here's the thing. I know that in this context, she didn't want them wiped out with God's judgment upon Jericho. That's true. But I believe that along with that, she wanted her family to believe in the God of Israel like she had come to believe in him. And who knows, by this time, maybe they had already done that. As we read further in the story, verse 12 of Joshua 2, it says, Now therefore, she said, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. And give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, 
that we will deal kindly and truly with you. See, this is another evidence to me that her faith was genuine. You know, the, the writer to the Proverbs said, in Proverbs 11, verse 30, the fruit of righteousness, or in other words, the fruit of salvation, is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. And I believe what the writer is saying is, when you're truly saved and connected to God, your life is like a tree, and it bears forth fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, God has always been concerned about the lost. So first and foremost, when a person gets saved, they, want to, they have a heart to see people saved, don't they? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, when we got saved, one of the first things we wanted to do was to tell our families about the Lord, right? And then when they threw you out, you're good friends <laughs> who ostracized you. And so, you know, it was, a lonely, it was kind of lonely in the beginning, wasn't it? So you found the rest of us goofballs, you know, and then we, we could, you know, help each other out a little bit. But, you know, at, at first, you know, you thought, well, you, this is great. Everybody's going to want to hear what I just learned. We're all going to want this. Yeah. Yeah, well, but at least it was an evidence that something had gone, was different in your heart, right? And again, I believe this was also proof that her faith was genuine. Now, the third point. First of all, the reality of Rahab's faith. Secondly, the reason for Rahab's faith. Thirdly, the result of Rahab's faith. And let's just, first of all, read verse 13. Then she let down these guys, these spies, by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city, on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. Now, if you're new with us, you might be thinking, that's a little odd. But how did she dwell on the wall? Was she kind of hanging up there? And what, what is that all? No. Jericho was basically a fortress. It was a fortress. It had fortified walls and towers and gates. But archaeology has shown that it was actually surrounded by two walls, an outer wall and then an inner wall. The walls were separated by about 15 feet. And all around this double wall, there were, at various intervals, there was wood planking on which they would build houses. Okay, first high rises, I guess. <laughs> to kind of maximize space. You couldn't build out anymore. you got to go up, right? And so Rahab's house straddled these two walls, as well as, no doubt, other people's houses had done. That's why I could say that her house was on the wall, was part of the city. It was. But these walls, the outer walls we pointed out last time, uh, could have been as much as 80 feet thick. These were big walls. And we read in verse 16, And she said to them, Go to the mountains, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days, until the pursuers have returned. Afterward you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window, through which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own house. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be upon his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. What color was this rope? Scarlet. Significant, right? It reminds us of blood. In fact, this whole scene is reminiscent of something that happened 40 years earlier, isn't it? How that when God was about to lead his people out of Egypt, he told them that they were to celebrate the first Passover, which revolved around them taking a, a lamb without spot or blemish, perfect, killing that lamb and putting its blood on the doorpost and lentil of their homes. 
and whoever was inside that house, it could be Jew or Egyptian. When the angel of death was sent out by God to destroy the firstborn, if the angel saw the blood on the house, that house was protected, and the angel of death would pass over that house. No judgment would come upon that house and all who were in it. And, of course, it looked forward, of course, to Jesus, who Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 is our Passover. How that we apply the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to our lives, not to our houses, but to our hearts by faith. And as we do, of course, that allows uh, the judgment of God to pass over us. In fact, the Bible says when we do that, we have passed from death to life, and we shall never come into condemnation or judgment. So all of this pointed to Jesus. Now, the next statement by these two spies is a little odd to us who are Christians. Because we're all about going into all the world and getting the message out, right? But listen to what they said in verse 20. And if you tell this business of ours, you know, you go out there broadcasting this deal, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. In other words, don't tell anybody about what's coming. You would think that God would have wanted Rahab to go spread the word, you know, to go into all the city and preach the good news. That if anybody else would believe in the God of Israel and hang a scarlet cord from their window, that they would be spared from the judgment that was coming. You would think that. Why did the soldiers want to keep this a secret? I believe it was because the day of grace had come to an end for the people of Jericho and for the people of Canaan in general. See, they had all this time to believe in the God of Israel. Out of her own mouth, she says, we heard how that 40 years ago, your God parted the Red Sea. So for 40 years, some of them had known about the God of Israel. How much time does God need to give a person before they open their heart to him and accept him as Lord and Savior, right? And in our context, accept Christ. How long should God wait today for somebody until, you know, he says, you've had enough opportunity. The day of grace is over with. Well, I don't know. I mean, every heart is different. I don't know. I know that there are some people that on their deathbed, well, one of the thieves on the cross received Christ in the last hours of his life and was saved. Years ago, uh, we had a sweet uh, older lady in our church, and she was married to an unbeliever. He was a pretty staunch unbeliever, too. Gave her a hard time for coming to church and all. And, well, he uh, one day got very ill and was in the hospital, and she asked me if I'd go see him. And I remember at this point he was about 81 years old. And I went to, to see him, and I witnessed him. Because, you know, a guy's 81 years old. You don't know how much time he's got left. You know, you just, you know. At that point, I'm not really concerned about offending anybody. You need to hear this. And, I, and I'm always trying to be tactful, okay? You know, if you know me, I mean, I'm not in your face and that kind of thing. But... And I, in the course of witnessing to this guy, and I could see that it wasn't getting through. I mean, you know, it's just kind of bouncing off, you know. But I said to him, I forgot his name, Jacques, I think, or something like that. I said, Jacques, I said, God has waited 81 years to call you his son. He's not going to wait another 81 years. Today is the day of salvation. Well, he rejected it. Got better, went home, and about six or seven years later, he passed away. Now, I don't know if he ever did receive the Lord. I don't think he did. I mean, how long is God supposed to wait? I mean, how long is God supposed to say, you know what? 
I keep trying to get to you. I, I keep trying to bring people into your life that will witness to you for me. I love you. I want to see you saved. I keep sending people. You keep, you know, throwing them out of your house or, you know, you keep uh, making fun out of them at work and so on. How long am I supposed to wait? Well, I believe God waits until a person's heart becomes so hard that they commit the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? It's not any one sin. It's a process that takes place over years sometimes where a person keeps saying no to Jesus Christ when people witness to them. They keep saying no. They keep rejecting the gospel. And every time they do, it gets a little easier to reject it next time. Their heart gets a little harder until their heart becomes so hard they can no longer believe anymore. It's impossible for them now to believe. Case in point, the Pharisees. Matthew 12, they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He says, you guys need to be, be very careful. You're getting dangerously close to committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But it says they would not believe. John 12, sometime later, it says that they could not believe. Because they had hardened their hearts so much they had passed that spiritual point of no return. You know, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10, in verses 26 and 7 says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. In other words, if you hear the gospel and you reject it because who knows why? I don't like all that blood stuff. seems a little gory to me. It's a barbaric faith. No, I want something a little more, you know, a little nicer, you know. In fact, I don't even like this stuff where God's in control. I want to be God. So I like all this stuff, this new age stuff that, you know, lets me be God and I just have to keep improving myself and I'll ascend to Godhood and I can be in control and call the shots and all that. So that's very popular today uh, also. But the writer is saying, look, if you reject the only way that your sins can be paid for, can be atoned for, you're playing a very dangerous game. Because you may not get another chance. You may not get another opportunity. And all that's left is God's judgment upon your life. God doesn't want to send you to hell. He doesn't want to judge you. That's why he sent his son. But if you refuse to come to Christ, there's nothing left God can do. He can only provide a way by which you might be saved. He can't make you walk it. He can't make you believe it. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, look, that's why if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. This is the day of salvation. If you hear God calling you, and that's what God does. He goes out looking for lost sheep, right? Jesus does. If you hear him calling you, how does he call? How do I hear his voice? That, that goofy guy at work that keeps putting tracks on your desk. That's Jesus calling you. <laughs> I just thought he was a goofball. Well, he might be. I don't know. We, we're a little strange at times. But the point is, God uses all kinds of things and all kinds of ways and people to call to you. Are you going to listen? You know, I'm convinced one of the horrors of hell is going to be people for all eternity are going to be in this horrible place of darkness, weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth. And you know what they're going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth about the most? I didn't have to come here. Why didn't I listen to that person that kept talking to me every day at work? Why couldn't I just read one of those tracts that he had gave me out of the dozens he put on my desk? Why was I so hard? Why was I so filled with pride? That I let those opportunities go. And now I find my... And I didn't have to come here. That's 
to me, a chilling thing to have to think about. And then in Joshua 2, verse 21, she said to these men, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she, and she bound a scarlet cord in the window. Now, Rahab did that by faith. All she had was God's promise that judgment was coming. She hadn't seen the judgment yet, but she knew that God had said he was going to bring judgment on this city. But if she would put a cord, a scarlet cord in her window, that when the soldiers came into the city, they would spare her house and all who were in it. But she acted on faith. Very important point. What I want you to understand is I think author Warren Worsby really points it out well. He said, it's important to note that Rahab and her family were saved by faith in the God of Israel and not by faith in the rope hanging out the window. The fact that she hung the rope from the window was proof that she had faith just as the blood of the slain lamb put on the doorposts in Egypt proved that the Jews believed God's word. He goes on to say, many people today depend for their salvation on their water baptism or participating in the, in the Eucharist or communion. He said, these things are rituals. They represent a spiritual reality, but by themselves to believe in those things to get you to heaven is absolutely worthless and meaningless. We have to believe in the God who has told us in his word what is true and what we must do if we want to escape the judgment that's coming. It's never a ritual. You know, it's never a ritual that saves us. The ritual only speaks of a reality. The Jews had come to believe at one point that circumcision saved them. Circumcision was only a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was not the covenant. It was a sign of the covenant. Just like a wedding ring is a sign of the marriage covenant. It doesn't make you marry. You can take the wedding ring off. You're still married. But it shows everybody that you belong to somebody else. You made a commitment. And that's what these symbols represented. When they observed uh, circumcision in the Old Testament, or when we observe water baptism today, or we celebrate the Lord's Supper, all of these things speak to the reality that we have a relationship with God. They don't make our relationship with God. That's faith. They just demonstrate we have one. So when people start putting their faith in rituals and ceremonies, that's religion, that's worthless, that won't get you to heaven. You have to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So a very important point. She wasn't saved by the red cord hanging out the window. She was saved by the faith that caused her to hang that cord out the window because she believed in what God had said. And again, one last time. Rahab was justified not by, listen, faith plus works. She was justified. She was saved by a faith that works. A faith that gives evidence that something is going on here. That it's not just head knowledge. And again, we see it manifest in the way she took her life into her hands to save these spies, to protect them, to send them on their way, to help them escape, and so on. But now, I want to end with a question that we left you with last week. We brought this up last week, and I just kind of left it dangling there so you could think about it all week. And that's this. How could Rahab have had such a remarkable faith and still be a prostitute? Does that bother anybody here? I mean... Here's a woman that has obviously remarkable faith. And I believe she was genuinely saved. How is it that she's still a prostitute? Well, we said last week it could be that her faith was so young that the Holy Spirit really didn't have enough time to convict her that the life that she was living, her livelihood was really immoral 
and an affront to God's holiness. You say, well, isn't that obvious, though? Look, we're living in a country that has 200 years or 250 years of Judeo-Christian heritage that goes back 2,000 years and even beyond that into the Old Testament. Look, what we take for granted being raised in America with the morals and principles of God's word, you're talking about a pagan culture that knew nothing of God's laws, really. So it could be that, you know, she hadn't grown enough yet to really see how wicked this really was and how much it dishonored God. But there is a possibility that by the time the spy showed up on her doorstep, she had already forsaken her prostitution when she had gotten saved. You say, well, wait a minute now. You're throwing me. It says here in chapter 2, she's called Rahab the harlot. Doesn't that prove she was a harlot? It proves she was a harlot at one time. It doesn't prove that she was an active harlot at that moment. Any more than when Simon the leper invited Jesus and a whole bunch of other people to his house for lunch. Mark 14, verse 3. And they all sat at the table, right? With this guy named Simon the leper. Obviously he was not an active leper because God said no person with active leprosy was to hang out with people. In fact, they were to be ostracized. They were to live outside the city walls. The fact that this guy is sitting at a table in his own house with a bunch of people around him, including Jesus, signifies that Jesus had no doubt healed him of his leprosy. And that's why Jesus was invited over to his house for dinner. And I think that that could be the very thing with Rahab, that God had delivered her from a life of prostitution, and the label harlot remained. Why? As a testimony to the grace of God, who takes prostitutes and lepers those that were ostracized, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, those who are afar off, and by the blood of Christ brings them near and makes them his own dear children. Hey, the title harlot at one time was a degrading immoral label. But now that she was saved, it was a badge of honor because it glorified God who had delivered her from that lifestyle. Now, is there anything from the story of Rahab that would lead us to believe that she was no longer a practicing prostitute. Well, I came across something interesting, and I'll share it with you. Author, pastor, and professor at, of theology at Dallas uh, Seminary, Gene Getz, shares why he believes Rahab had left her harlotry when she came to believe in God, the God of Israel, long before the two spies arrived on her doorstep. And he points back to verse 6 and the stalks of flax that were mentioned. Verse 6 says, But she had brought them, the two spies, up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order, which she had laid in order on the roof. From what I understand, stalks of flax were pulled up at harvest time, soaked in water for about four weeks to separate the fibers, laid out in the sun to dry, and then made cloth. They were, cloth was made from these. Get says, gathering flax was a very laborious task. Well, you can imagine. All these things soaking for four weeks, they were waterlogged, they were heavy. She had to drag them up to her roof because that was the only place that she had that she could lay them out to dry in the sun. Getz says, industrious women of old would spend hours gathering these stalks to make cloth. In fact, the book of Proverbs describes one characteristic of a virtuous woman as one who looks for wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. He said if Rahab had still been practicing her old profession... Chances are she would not be spending time gathering flax since prostitutes are not known for the time they spend doing regular work. 
And it's important to note that Rahab had, had gathered enough flax to cover up two grown men. Evidently, she had been in the cloth business for some time. But then he goes on to say that the scarlet rope is an even more powerful piece of evidence that Rahab had changed her profession. He said, and I quote, When the ancients made dye, they would boil it out of rocks. And since liquid dye was difficult to transport and store, they would put a piece of rope into the dye to absorb it. Cloth makers would then buy pieces of the rope to dye their clothes. While the cloth was boiling in water, they would drop a piece of the dyed rope in uh, the container, and the color would transfer from the rope to the fabric. Usually, a very small piece of rope was needed. Six inches or, or so would dye a large quantity of cloth. This is an important point. Rahab had enough rope to hang over the wall so the men could climb down a wall that might have been as high as 30 feet or more. For a cloth maker, that's a lot of rope. Evidently, Rahab's cloth business was no minor operation. She may have changed her profession long before we are introduced to her in chapter 2. It just, again, testifies to the radical transformation that God works in people's lives, isn't it? I mean, when I see what God has done, even in some of your lives in this room, I mean, the lives that you lived and I lived before we got saved, and then to see what God has done, how he has taken us from these vain, empty things that we were involved in, sometimes immoral and illegal things, and we came to Christ, he began to clean us from the inside out. It's just a testimony, right? Now, now let me just end by saying this. Rahab escaped judgment that was coming in her day. What about those of you here today? What about those of you here, or maybe those who are going to be listening on CD to this message or even on the radio eventually? As we speak right now, there are people all across this country who are sitting in churches, good churches, many of them, who are teaching the Word of God, and people are sitting there nodding their heads in agreement because they agree with what God has said in His Word, yet they don't mix the hearing of the Word of God with true faith, and so they finish at church, they go out into the world, and all week long they live as if they don't believe anything that they have heard on Sunday morning. And in reality, it's because they don't believe with saving faith what they've heard. Because if you really believe, it will change the way you live. That's just the bottom line. Just something for you to consider. Look, let me just say this, and we'll close. The whole point that I wanted to bring out, that I think God is bringing out, is that if there's one person in the world who has come to believe in Jesus Christ, God will not punish the righteous with the wicked, right? Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember how that there was a righteous man living in Sodom named Lot? And the city was so immoral, so evil, that God was going to wipe it out, and he sent a couple of angels to you know, bomb the place? But they had to go into the city and get Lot out first, right? And what did they say to Lot? They said, we can't do anything as long as you're here. And Peter picked up on that in the second epistle, chapter 2, I think verse 9. He says, listen to the story of Lot. How God is telling us that he will not punish the righteous with the wicked. God knows how to deliver the righteous out before his judgment falls and to reserve the unjust under his punishment for the day of wrath. 
Of course, that's what the rapture is all about, isn't it? It's God evacuating his people off this earth before his judgment comes. But I believe that God loves people so much that if one person was left on the face of the earth that would receive Christ, God will not send judgment until that one person was somehow delivered. I hope you're that one person. I hope you're one of those people. Because every person that has ever lived is going to hear, is going to stand before God someday, is going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to say one of two things to everyone who's ever lived. He's either going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. Or he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've come to me, you've believed on me. Now, enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into my kingdom forever. And I think this story is God's way of getting people's attention to say, look, I love you. And I will do whatever I have to reach you and to save you. But hearing my word is not enough. You've got you've to receive me. You've got to come to me. Open your heart and make a commitment to me. When you do that, I will save you from the wrath to come. Otherwise, it's just head knowledge. And head knowledge will not save anybody. So may God give us the grace to understand what he's trying to say here. He is a loving and merciful God. He desires for all men to be saved, all people to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But you have to receive Christ by faith, true faith, to be saved. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness, for your grace. Like Rahab, Lord, none of us here is worthy of your love or your salvation. But, Lord, you do love us and you want to save us. But, Lord, you won't force us to be saved. Give us grace, Lord, those who have only heard your word but have never really made a commitment to Jesus. Father, work in their heart right now. Show them that many will say to you on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we go to church? Didn't we do all kinds of wonderful works and ministry in your name? And I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice sin. Lord, I just pray that you would touch every heart of this morning who doesn't know you. Father, we pray that no one would leave this place without making peace with you through your son, Jesus Christ. We just thank you for your grace, Lord. It's truly an amazing thing. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.